Welcome to Human Potential at Work, the show where we explore social impact, inclusion, and empowerment of everyone, including persons with disabilities. Your host is Deborah Rue, CEO of Rue Global Impact and co-founder and chairwoman of Billion Strong, an identity and empowerment organization designed to bring billions of voices of persons with disabilities together. To join the global community and to donate to the cause, visit billion-strong.org. That's billion-strong.org. And now, on to the episode. Hello, everyone. My name is Deborah Rue, and I'm the CEO of Rue Global Impact, and I'm the executive chair of Billion Strong. So thank you for joining us on Human Potential at Work today. I, um, I'm really excited to feature Regina Bly from the Christopher Reeves Foundation. Now, Regina is the chief program and policy officer for them, and she's been with them almost a year. But she also, I love the work that they're doing. I had the pleasure to meet Kim Beer, and I think she's an amazing resource for them. But also, I just personally, like so many other people, loved Christopher Reeve, Dana Reeve, their entire family. And, you know, as we watched what happened to Christopher Reeve when he had the spinal cord injury, I, I know Americans learned a lot. We learned a lot, but it wasn't just about Americans. I think he was loved all over the world. Um, and so, uh, Regina, very quick, I'm going to do a visual description, then I want to turn it over to you. I am a uh, mature uh, white woman with purple and white hair with lots of gray in it. And I'm wearing um, purple today with some red glasses. So I'm staying with a theme today. But Regina, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Um, do you mind just telling us a little bit about who you are and also give us um, a, a description as well? Thank you so much, Deborah, for having me here today. It's a pleasure. I am Regina Bly. And I'm a black female that has a sort of cinnamon color dreadlocks that are curly. I'm middle-aged. I'm wearing a black and white kind of floral top with a black necklace. And behind me, I have a, an eclectic bookshelf. And um, again, so happy to be here. Yeah, and you have some really cool things hanging on your wall, too. So uh, thank you. I love people that have interesting things in the background. I have just a beige wall for anybody that can see it. Um, but you know what? Why don't we start, Regina? Because I know you are doing so much. And um, I know you are in the United States, but you're also global and you work with international partners. And also, Regina, I know you're doing a lot of speaking. And I would really recommend to any of the corporate people that are listening to this to make sure you're inviting Regina to speak because we need to see more diversity, um, in, uh, a lot more diversity in our group. So, Regina, why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about who the Christopher Reeves Foundation is. I think a lot of people have a name recognition, but I don't know that people really understand what y'all what y'all do. Thank you for this opportunity. So as you mentioned, most people usually know about the foundation because of Christopher Reeve, and we appreciate him championing the, the idea of that paralysis needs to be at the forefront and that we need to focus on cures and treatments, and then just also making sure that they are able to maintain a healthy life. And because of that, our foundation has been able to expand and focus on not only research, but also on making sure that the care side is being focused on. So we have a, a dual mission that we like to focus on, and that's where it's kind of simple. It's today's care. 
in Tomorrow's Cure. And that means that those that are interested in research, we have a lot of information that's there for you to follow and to um, read up on. And if you're interested in the care side, and that's caregiving, getting out, making sure you're having access to employment, then we have a lot of resources there for you as well. And we have a very huge target audience in America. It's one in 50 people are diagnosed with paralysis. So that's about 6 million people across the United States. And about 1.3 million of those individuals have a spinal cord injury. So we have a vast audience that we can give these resources to for free. I agree. And I also love that you have a very tight community. I know um, Ali Igersoul, who writes blogs for you. And Mm -hmm. I just love how the community is engaged with what you're doing, which I don't always see that happening with all organizations that are supporting um, people with lived experiences with disabilities. So that's something that I've always appreciated about what you're doing as well. Um, Thank you. And, you know, I I just want to delve a little bit into that. I just want to talk just for a second about caregivers, because I'm going to give you a loaded question, Regina, you're going to love this one. But the reality is the caregiver issue is a major, major problem in the United States. And by the way, all over the world, major problem. Most caregivers are not paid. They're family members. If I'm caring for my beautiful, wonderful family member and I can't work outside the home, how do I pay my bills? So there's just some major, major major issues with caregivers that I think COVID-19 just exposed even more so to us. And so I know that that's something that you are very interested in as well, and you're trying to get your hands around. But something that I don't think that people understand is how expensive it is for an individual with a spinal cord injury, for example. Um, the, uh, I, I have been exposed to a lot of this, but it is chilling. And a lot of, just speaking from an, as an American, a lot of Americans just assume the government gives people with spinal cord injuries all the money they need to, but there's some real harsh realities with that. That is not the case, and that's not a complaint against my government, but the reality is it's very expensive to have a spinal cord injury. And Regina, I don't know if you would agree with that or if you have any experience with that, I say sarcastically, but yeah, so over to you. <laughs> well, I would say it is expensive. I, I used to joke about that if you want a spinal cord injury, you have to be a rich because it isn't something that anyone can afford if they are just surviving off of the federal government because it, it, it requires a lot of money and time and patience that people don't have. And it's, it's frustrating and it prevents people from being able to maximize their, their opportunities and their capabilities. And I'll say as a person that has a spinal cord injury, and I've had one now for the last 36 years, I've seen the differences of, of what is out there and available for people as someone that was injured prior to the Americans with Disabilities Act to where we're at today. There's been some vast improvements, but there's still some lag out there that people are facing when it comes to caregiving. And I'll just give you an, an example to get dressed today. I had to have my partner help me. Now, he's the partner that loves me, cares for me deeply, but he also shouldn't be the one that's helping me comb my hair. He also shouldn't be helping me get dressed. But that's what 
you do when you're limited on the resources that are out there. You find someone that is kind enough to be able to support you so that you can be active and engaged out in the community. Right. And, and, you know, another thing that people don't realize is we have amazing professional talent like Regina. Just pick on Regina for a second. And what she has to do, and I'm just going to assume this, Regina, based on other professionals I know with um, paralysis or their, you know, wheelchair users, is they have to pay out of pocket to make sure that they they have the right caregivers. And then we could even go down the really scary part. I I know that Dr. LaMondre Pugh, he is also a wheelchair user and he's the CEO of Billion Strong. And he was talking to a woman, very talented um, lawyer. She's she's a lawyer that works with celebrities and movie stars and stuff like that. And um, she is also a person that's in a wheelchair. She was paying over $200,000 out of pocket for caregivers to make sure she could work. So I think it's so sad and that as people don't realize that um, often people that are that are wheelchair users, spinal cord injuries, they're actually, you can't pay them a normal salary and expect that. It's just, it's all messed up, Regina, and people don't understand these things, the, the true realities. And so do we mind just, do you mind just talking a little bit more about some of the harsh realities you and your peers are, you know, experiencing? Sure, will do. And I would say I $200,000 out of pocket isn't a surprise. And I can just use myself as an example. So I am compensated very nicely at my employers, the Christopher and Dana Reed Foundation. And even still with the compensation that I receive, it's not enough for me for me to be able to have consistent caregiving. And for the reason is that when you're wanting to have a paid personal care attendant or caregiver, depending on what state you're in, they won't allow you to pay for someone to travel out of town. My job requires me to travel in order to speak or even to have meetings and to get work done. And so because of that, I cannot afford to pay for someone to travel. That's the airline expense. That's the hotel. Also, that requires them to maybe miss work and have other jobs that they are performing. Sometimes they're caring for more than one person. So that means I'm taking them away from someone else. And that's just not fair. So I end up having to use my partner to be able to help me. And so it's it's something that you have to think about when you're taking a job Can you have someone that's reliable to depend on no matter what happens on on a regular basis? And for me, travel is definitely one that is hard for me to manage. And just going into the the survey that we completed, according to the survey, 96% of Americans are aware that the Americans with Disabilities Act is there and it's active. But most people are afraid to travel. And the reason why they're afraid to travel is because their wheelchairs may be injured. They might have harm to themselves. And then also they can't go to the restroom. So when you factor in all those things and then you have to have a caregiver with you and that's an extra expense. 
it makes it hard for people to work. So caregiving is really a key component to make sure that people are successful, they're taxpayers, and they're buying in into their community. And we have to figure out a way to be able to articulate in some sort of way that policy is needed around caregiving. And that also people need to be compensated in a way that caregiving can be included in the process. I agree. And also caregivers need to make marketable salaries so they don't have to work 15 jobs to survive. Sorry. Absolutely. Yes. Ridiculous. We, (laughs) We pay people that are good with basketballs and footballs or they're good singers. Oh my gosh. We have caregivers taking care of human beings. What we, we have caregivers that would rather go and work for the fast food industry, no offense to the fast food industry, than to be able to take care of an individual that is just trying to live their life with dignity. And, and we need to figure out what that is because they're paying more than someone is supposed to give care or they're being forced into nursing facilities. And then they're having to have that care. They get that round the clock care. But then the quality of life is being being affected at the same time. Right. And is that fair? Absolutely not. No, no. And also, is that humane? That Absolutely humane? not. No. <laughs> and yeah, and, and uh, my my, I have um, a daughter with Down syndrome, and she is now a wheelchair user part time. And um, you know, I I helped her move out of the house, get supported apartment, and the experience that she had was chilling. Uh, it was, it was, but she is now back home with me, but it would, and it wasn't because the caregivers didn't care. It's because they do not have the resources. They do not have access to the talent because we pay such horrible weight, blah, blah, blah. So as you said, this is a huge issue that we must solve. So Regina, so I know y'all recently did a survey and one thing we're going to do, we're going to make sure we give you the link to the survey. They have tons of resources, tons of blogs. They have so much great stuff out there for us and for employers. But I want to say, Regina, this is something that we're doing and I'm so nervous as I'm going to say this, but I'm just going to be honest with you. So once again, Dr. Lamandre Pugh is a person that is a wheelchair user, and he's the new CEO of Billion Strong that we just got our 501c3. So, I mean, it's- Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. IRS had gotten behind. So it's, but it's about identity and pride, but we want to take on issues like the caregiver issues along beside organizations like yours, because it's going to take all of us doing this. But we are, we, you know, we're looking at all these caregiving issues and just staggered by it. And there's a lot of conversations happening, but at the same time, here we are, this billion strong organization doing lots of talk and say, we can be fully exhibited. Well, so how do I, as the executive chair of the board and the rest of the board, how do we compensate Dr. Um, Pugh to make sure that all of his money is not just used so that he has caregivers? Do we make his caregivers uh, employees? It's a very interesting exercise because I feel like, Regina, we got to figure out how to do it right so we can show others how to do it. So I personally am starting to believe that a caregiving should fall under accommodations, but at the same time, I understand it's 
expensive, but we actually, the leaders of the world, like what you're doing, what we're doing at Billion Strong and other groups, I think we sort of have to model how it's going to look. And so that's something I want to bring you into that conversation. But it's interesting, Regina, is that something that y'all thought about? How do employers get this talent, but to support this talent with humane treatment, right? I mean, all the different things we're talking about. I think a lot of these employers, they just don't know what to do and they're missing out on really talented individuals. You know, this is a really hard one and it's one that we are dealing with today. And that's because we have several people within our organization that could, that, that result in paralysis and could use reasonable accommodations or just in general, just to make sure that everyone has the tools that are available for them to thrive. And for me, I think when you when you step back and you look at it in general, you just need to figure out what policies do you need to include to make sure that you have an inclusive environment. And that means talking to individuals that actually have some sort of paralysis or a disability to say, what, what is it that you need in order to thrive? And then once you understand that, look at the fiscal component that is associated with it and what, what, what methods and priorities are you going to put in place to make sure that that funding is there up front and then everything else comes second? Because usually when we build a budget, we don't think about accommodations first. It's usually what's left over and remaining and say, okay, here's a pot of money that's here and whatever fits is what we're going to accommodate. But we need to reverse it when we're focusing on making sure that we can have an inclusive workspace. What does that mean? We have to start asking people so that when we hire them, we're ready and we're not scrambling behind the scenes to try to figure out how we can get them involved. And it starts with engaging those individuals and asking questions, developing policies, and then making sure that there's training across the board from leadership all the way down to your entry level employees that understands what does that look like? Right. I think it'll work better when you start thinking about talking to people first and having those policies and making sure money is first to be able to support those activities. I agree. And I would say I, I totally agree with you. And I'm going to um, bring up one point, not an argument, but I just <laughs> want to say to you this, and I know you're going to agree with me. I totally agree with what you're saying, but I also want to say to employers that you should definitely be talking to candidates and individuals that have spinal cord injuries or paralysis or wheelchair users. Ask them, communicate with them. But at the same time, I also want to say, warn y'all, that just because you've met one person that uses a wheelchair, you've met one person that uses the wheelchair, which is why I think it is really helpful for working for organizations like the Christopher Reeve Foundation, because you're not just talking to one person, you're talking to thousands and thousands of people because they have years of experience and they obviously are walking the walk because they've hired Regina and others. So I just, I totally agree with you, Regina, but I've seen some corporate brands make the mistake of talking to one person that has lived experience with disabilities. There is at least 1.3 billion people with disabilities in the world. We know probably much higher, but I just was wondering if you might want to come in here on that comment. Yes. I would say the disability community is not a monolith. We have various 
abilities and and likes and wants. And so that means that because you talk to one person, that means you talk to one person because what makes sense to them could be the complete opposite for someone else. And I can give you an example for myself, just going out into the built environment when I'm rolling around using my motorized wheelchair, I love the fact that we have curb cuts. I can get across the street, be able to go wherever I need to go. But at the same time, it is extremely annoying for me to go up and down the ramps that are there because they have all that tactile that's there, the bumps, or those are there to help someone else with a different type of disability. It helps them with wayfinding, usually for those that are blind, have limited vision, but it's very hard for me. I spasm. It ends up making my body have pain that wasn't there before, but I totally understand. But if you just talk to somebody who used the wheelchair only, then that that curb cut wouldn't be sufficient for someone who was blind or low or have low vision. That's why it is important for you to talk to everyone to understand what is out there, what's reasonable and what makes sense for the broader audience so that everyone feels like they're involved and included. And so I I understand that it causes me a little trauma whenever I'm using the curb cuts, but I appreciate it because they're there and it allows for more people to be able to get out and access their community. Yeah, I think we are trying, but there's just huge, huge problems that are stopping us from really being able, if you speak just as an American, to fulfill the spirit of the Americans with Disabilities Act, or if you're outside our country, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. But it's just so important right now that our community be more visible. And I was just wondering, Regina, if you agree with that, because one thing that I was seeing is that, and by the way, anybody that's trying to help um, the community, people with disabilities be more fully included, thank you. Yay. We need your voices. Yay. But at the same time, I think it's very important that some of the leaders like me, that people are very eager to give the microphone to, that we step back and we give the microphone to you, Regina. And I made a comment multiple times. I would say something like, give your seat up at the table. And people are like, oh, just pull another seat up at the table. You're in a wheelchair. Just pull it. But the reality is, and we're just speaking figuratively, but the reality is, it doesn't work that way. So by me saying, choose Regina to speak for you instead of coming, not that I don't want to speak for people, but just right now, I think we have to be more deliberate about making sure all of the voices of our community are heard. The different diversity groups, the gender, LGBT, all of that. But at the same time, as Regina was saying, all of the different disability types. There's there's a lot of disability types that will mimic some of the same accommodation needs. There's there's a lot of stuff out there, but at right now I still think Regina, we're not doing a good job of getting the right voices at the table. I don't know if you're seeing that. I agree with all of that. I think that there's still room for improvement. I know according to our survey. There's a one third of Americans who at least know someone that is paralyzed or they're using some sort of wheelchair or mobility device. And I'm encouraged by that number because that means that more people with paralysis are getting out there in the community and engaged. I used to say that the best form of advocacy is just being present and showing up 
just showing the ability that you're capable of managing meetings, speaking up, being able to work, go to school, drive, all of the things that everyone else does without a disability, you can do the same thing. And it's all about just making sure that you have a visible presence. And how do you do that to amplify it so that more and more people know about it? What's media and marketing? You need to see more people in commercials, you need to see them in movies and TV shows, active, actively engaged in just normal roles and not pointing them out as having a disability, but they're engaged in normal routine activities, just as you do in normal life. The more you see that, the more people will be engaged and they won't see you as this anomaly. Like I'm surprised that you can even drive or is if you're surprised at the very fact that I can drive, then what does it mean for you to think that I can actually work? So you start minimizing people's abilities. And so you have to start seeing people engaged in doing more so that you can say, there is no limit. It's only that person's imagination and capabilities. And that should be the only thing limited to them, not society. And so there needs to be more engagement around people with paralysis, people who use wheelchairs, people of color, someone like myself. And I would say when I was, I don't know, around 16 or 17, I was in high school and I was traumatized because one of my classmates told me that I wasn't ever going to be anything because I was black. I was one, I was a girl and I was, and I was in a wheelchair. I was handicapped. And so someone who was still, still learning and growing and then a small, small town in in Texas, you're telling this person that they're not going to be anything because of their own existence. Well, what do you do with that? I was traumatized for a long time. And I felt that it was true because I didn't see anyone else like me. I was always the only one. So then I thought, well, maybe that is true. But then over time, I started seeing people and I was like, whoa, wait a minute. If this person is going to school and doing this, then why can't I? And then I realized that those things are what set me apart. They make me fabulous. They make my unicorn um, glow even better. And, and so now I'm not afraid of it. And it's a way of saying, how do I amplify that? How do I, how do I help foster that attitude of being a Black confident woman with a disability? You can do it too. But it took some time. It took some tears. It took me to be able to have a thick skin to realize that, hey, I'm beautiful, I'm capable, and no one's going to stop me just because I'm using a wheelchair. Point. Right. And and employers need you. They want you. I mean, you. Yeah. yeah, You're exactly what people are looking for. So, um, I I want to talk a little bit uh, because y'all also address this in your survey. And once again, please go out and look at what they're doing. But I want to just, um, this is such a sad subject to me, but travel and air, you know, wheel, traveling with wheelchairs. Any problem with that? We got that nailed, right? Yay, that solved. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> well, I would say I, I probably have a story for everything. I think having, having paralysis now for 36 years, I feel like I'm an expert in things of what could go wrong. And then also how you can have opportunities for a lot of success. And, and when it comes to 
traveling by airplane, there's a lot of trauma associated just even with the prep work to be able to get on a plane. And that's because you can't use the restrooms if you are not able to walk to get to the facility. So that means that prior to you flying, you have to dehydrate yourself. Then that means that you probably cannot eat so that you can't have any accidents. Then people are forced to use diapers, figure out all kinds of interesting ways to prevent having accidents while they're flying. So that means that 34% of Americans choose not to fly because they're concerned about what? Being able to use the restroom. That's that that's that's unfortunate and sad that that's happening in the United States. We 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 can do better than that. But then after that, you're having to worry about well, what happens if my wheelchair gets damaged? Well, I just got my wheelchair back from a trip that I had at the end of August. It took five months for me to get my wheelchair repaired, and let me tell you. I am still recovering. I've only had it now for three days, I guess. And I'm still recovering for going five months without my chair. I wasn't the same person. I've gained so much weight. I think I entered into depression. I couldn't move around a lot. I was in pain. As soon as I was done with work, I would jump in the bed and I would I would roll around in bed in agony and then be like, got to get up and do it again. I mean, those are the things that you have to face whenever the airlines don't have an easy and equitable way for people to be able to travel. And then, and when you work with them, they'll say, oh, this will be fast and easy. Five months is not fast. And it no, wasn't no. easy. No, no. And there's not a price that you can put on your body, yes. your mental capacity, when you're waiting for a part of you to be returned. This is just not luggage. And then it'll get there when it gets there. It is part of me. It is who I am. And that is what makes it hard for people to not want to travel. So when you hear that 96% of Americans choose not to get on a plane, I understand. And I'm one who says, well, I'm wondering how long it's going to take before they break my chair on the next trip that I have, because I have several trips that are upcoming, but I'm not going to let that stop me because if I did, there won't be any advancements. We have to continue on and vocalize whatever isn't working until we can see true actualized change. I agree. I agree. And, and once again, I, that's why we're so glad that, you know, your foundation is involved. I know I kept you longer than I said, because I'm bad about that, especially when we have such an interesting guest. But I'm happy, so I'm so sorry. I want to ask you one more question. And this okay. is my question. So, um, DEIA, so disability, I mean, excuse me, diverse, diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, got to have accessibility. Um, It is really at the top of the minds of organizations, employers all over the world. Um, How can Christopher Reeves, because it is very confusing for these employers. So can you help guide people in uh, in the workforce to make sure they're accommodating individuals, they're bringing in individuals, especially individuals with spinal cord? How do they best accommodate them? I mean, how does Christopher Reeves, um, foundation, how do, do you work with employers to help them or or do you work with employers to help them meaningfully include this part of the population? 
That's something that we are actually getting ready to embark on. Just last year, we hired a health equity manager that is going to focus on our DEIA internal and external policies that are around people with paralysis. But then we're also looking at the opportunities to work with businesses in medical fields, particularly to make sure that research is available to all people of color and also races, background, sexuality. And then also just making sure that um, educational institutions as well as nonprofit and for-profits understand what it means to have an inclusive workplace. And so you're gonna see more of that roll out over the next few years about our engagement with organizations that are interested in making sure that they have an inclusive environment. Cause it is important. It is something that, that shows that you care about the value of all of your employees and if you look around and you see everyone that looks like you and it doesn't look like there's diversity across the room, then you're having a problem. You need to be able to have something out there that looks like the population of the community and not just one. And so we want to be able to point out some things that they can do. And earlier I mentioned money. I don't want it to make it sound like it's going to cost a lot. There are very inexpensive to no cost activities that you can do to be able to make sure that you have people with paralysis that use wheelchairs that to work for you. It just depends on the person that comes in and that's going to do the work. But there, there's, there's a, there's a possibility for anything to happen when it comes to, to disabilities. And we want to make sure that they take the road that is the easiest path for everyone. I agree. And, and I just want to point out something Regina said when she's talking about all the problem solving skills that, you know, she and others bring to the table. When you have a spinal cord injury, you sort of have no choice but to get very innovative and creative you, because the supports aren't really there. They're not. We still here in the United States, even though we're coming up on our, what, 34th uh, Americans with Disability Act, I have to think, 19, anyway. Um, 33? <laughs> I guess it's 33, Deborah. It's 2023. Okay. But... Uh, <laughs> But there's still so much work to do and so much misinformation. And also, even though the study you did showed that for most Americans believe that the government should compensate people with spinal cord injuries better so that they can't afford to fully be included. But I also think that there's more. Employers have to stop looking at, oh, it's too expensive to hire some. That's ridiculous. Look at the talent. Look at the talent. But uh, I would also say something that I know y'all do, Regina, you also work with other groups that are working on disability inclusion and partnerships, and you're very good collaborators. So happy to work with other groups that want to have impact and make sure this part of the community is fully engaged. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. We pride ourselves on the ability to collaborate. And part of that is because of our scope and our ties with the, the federal government. We are the only federally funded organization that focuses on paralysis. So it gives us that ability to be able to connect with people across the country, even parts of, 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 of countries that 
our friends to us in, in the United States for us to be able to have those good partnerships to get work done. And I think that is the part that is really key. And, and it gives us an opportunity to amplify, as you mentioned, our ability to plan and strategize. I don't think there's any better strategists out there than people with disabilities having to manage schedules for public transportation, making sure their caregivers come in on time, making sure that they get things done before they get up, go to bed, all those things. And that that happens before you even get to work. So we're planned and organized and those skills are used while we're at work. And so that's an opportunity for business to be able to take care of, uh, to be able to hire people that have a strategist mind. Yeah, I agree. Now, Regina, I know I kept you longer than I said, but I have such a fascinating conversation. I couldn't help it. But let me give you the last words. How can the audience um, find out more about the foundation and um, how can they find out more about you? I believe you're on LinkedIn, for example. I know you're not going to give your phone number or email address on this really um, popular show. Um, I've had people do that. It's like, no, don't do that. Um, (laughs) How can people get hold of you and learn more about what you're doing? Well, I would say first, you should go to our website. That's ChristopherReeve.org. You can access our paralysis caregiver national survey. Also, all the free resources that we have there. And I didn't get a chance to talk about those, but we have a resource guide that talks about information that you need if you're newly injured or to someone that has had a paralysis um, diagnosis for as many years as I have. We also issue out millions of dollars in grants each year to nonprofits who work with people with paralysis. And so we want to have more people apply for those. And we work with the veteran population. So there's a host of things that we do. And so I hope that you would go to our website and poke through and take notes of things. Give us a call. We have our number there as well as our email. And we'd love to connect with you if you want to partner or if you want to know more information about what we do. Right. And if they don't have a program, help them find a program so they they can create it. So that is the key. So if you need assistance with establishing DEI policies around having the access available in your organization, that's something that you can apply for if you need to have the structure in place. There's a host of things. And even what I think is important because of our friends in California, Emergency preparedness is key. And so we need to make sure that people with disabilities, including those with paralysis, are thought of when we have floods, mass shootings, anything catastrophic that happens in our cities and states. And so we have funding for that as well. So we have a host of resources that I hope that you will take a part in and be able to contact us because we have a mighty team that is there to help you out in your journey. I know. I love what you're doing. I love what you're doing. So, all right. Well, we'll, I'll say goodbye to the audience. And Regina, once again, is available to speak. And um, also they're available with projects. I mean, you know, they're helping and that, you know, let's make sure that they're fully included. So Regina, thank you for your work. Thank you so much for your work and your honesty and your enthusiasm and your leadership. We definitely appreciate that. Oh, well, thank you for giving us this opportunity. And Regina, you are um, can be found also on LinkedIn, I, I'm going to assume. 
Yes, I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. I'm trying to be social. <laughs> oh, good, good. Well, then let's join her. Let's join her and be social. So, all right. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Human Potential at Work. To learn more about Rue Global Impact, visit rueglobal.com. And to learn more about Billion Strong, an identity and empowerment organization designed to bring the billions of voices of persons with disabilities together, you can join the global community and donate at billion-strong.org. That's billion-strong.org.